Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, the space where I sit down with the world's most interesting brands and digital agencies to unpack where they're at, where they're going, and how they're navigating the consumer landscape. I'm your host, Tim. So I'm changing up the format a bit for the rest of the year. I'm moving from a season-based schedule to weekly episodes. This will continue into next year also. I really appreciate you tuning in. So if you've got any feedback, you can hit me up at tim at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I chat with Jed Coleman. Jed is a serial entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of CEO of Rise and Fall, an e-commerce marketplace connecting consumers with the best luxury goods manufacturers in the world. Previously, he co-founded Curve.Life, a digital education business for cancer patients, as well as caravan restaurants and caravan coffee roasters. In a previous life, he was an international disputes lawyer running multi-billion dollar disputes all over the world. He's passionate about surfing, food, and trying to understand what it means to have a good life. We chat about the origins of Caravan Coffee, the power of timing, creating the antithesis of fast fashion, the advantages of disruptive supply chains, navigating the current macro climate, how to find the ideal co-founder and his ultimate surf and restaurant spots. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Jed, welcome to the podcast. Um, how are you and where are you? Hey, Tim. Uh, good to be here. I am uh, I'm very well. I'm in London, actually, in West London in Queen's Park. Love. At home, oh. at home, yeah. At home, Queen's Park. Oh, that's a nice area, man. Lovely. I'm over east in Walthamstow, and um, I've got a dog, so we've been over to Queen's Park Way a few yeah. times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a cool little enclave, you know. It's uh, and it's this is getting better and better. So um, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super. Yeah, it's like kind of even though it's west, it's quite central. Um, super nice houses, nice parks over that way. Yeah, really lovely area. Um, so I usually start these things by doing a bit of a rewind because there's a backstory always <laughs> and i'm keen to explore uh your time with caravan and i'm also intrigued as a i'd say avid coffee drinker and i've been to caravan many 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 times like your take on the kind of coffee culture that i think has kind of um changed i think the world in, to some degree over the last 15 years so yeah i'm keen to get just a bit of insight into those those early days with caravan yeah, yeah, interesting. So I, uh, I'm a Kiwi, obviously. I first came to uh, the UK, moved here 2001, and actually tried to do a coffee business in early 2002. Um, didn't happen for various reasons because I got offered a very good job elsewhere. But at that time in London, there were like three, no, no, let's say two and a half places to get a decent coffee in London. Like there was, Monmouth was running, and I think they had two sides. I still think they had the Covent Garden and the Borough Market, obviously. And at that time, there was uh, the Providors was fairly early on in Marlebone. I don't know if you know Peter Gordon's old restaurant. It's closed don't, now. Don't know that one, no. It's like a Kiwi haunt, but because of that background, it did uh, it did it did a decent coffee. And then 
there was Bar Italia in Soho, which I give a sort of half mark to because the Italians all think they do great coffee, but... Mm. They it's, don't. Yeah. yeah they don't. Yeah. They yeah. Yeah. It's okay. They drink it a lot weaker, actually, which is interesting. Um, and so we sort of teamed up with a friend and we tried to do something there. And it was very early. I was very green. And then I kind of got distracted by being offered this fantastic job in the, in the legal world, which was quite hard to refuse. So I, I ended up falling into that world um, for quite a few years. And then I was living in New York in 2008 and, um, kind of got the bug again to try and get back on the entrepreneurial track. So I started researching coffee and restaurants. It was, it was a great time to be in New York and came back to London. Uh, and at that time there still wasn't much good coffee around. It was limited. There were some others coming in at that time. All press was just arriving. A couple of other small roasteries. And so we set up Caravan, you know, and it started as a coffee business. It was, um, you know, we bought this roaster from Germany and we kind of winched it down like into a basement of, of a place in Exmouth Market after like taking the whole stairwell off. And, and you know, when we were putting the team together, we ended up getting a, a pretty good chef on board. And so we kind of built quite a full restaurant around it. And... Um, and that was that. We got a, 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 a cool guy down from Denmark to teach us how to roast coffee and um, a couple of sacks of beans and, and off we went. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was pretty basic stuff, you know. Um, and I think it was interesting as we were only able to get that site in Exmouth Market. It was done on a shoestring because um, we, uh, um, it was the GFC and so things were starting to go very cheap. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. That's all I'm always fascinated by, like, you know, and now it's probably a very similar time of like interesting businesses kind of sprouting out of, you know, potentially challenging markets, right? That's right. It gives opportunities, a lot of pain, but it gives opportunities, you know, like I can walk out of my door now here in Queens Park and there's probably three places in Queens Park where I can get a decent coffee, uh, which is great. And there's probably more around you because you're in kind of East London, but yeah. You know, there's still a long way to go. It's, you know, the penetration, as you would know from 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 Australia, from New Zealand and other countries, is still far greater. So, um, but there's, you know, it's a classic, from a business perspective, it's a classic kind of problem is that there's like 50 specialty roasters in London and how do you tell them apart? They're all saying, yep. we do this and it's all about yep. providence yep. and going to the thing. And it's the same story with wine. It's the same story with beer at craft, yep. you know, so it's, it's challenging all the same, but, um, you know, Caravan's pretty big now, I understand. I've, I've been out of it for a while. Uh, yep. And it's just being in the market for quite a long time, so. Uh, I don't know if you, so um, we, the agent, I used to work for a Shopify agency. We built your first site and I remember using Caravan uh, in my pitch deck, like <laughs> as, it's so funny, <laughs> you'll like this. It was a, because you guys did merch, right? So you kind of like, I, 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 like you, you, the the site was more of a, you know, most coffee sites or restaurants for that matter are information pages, right? It's like how to find them, where to find them, menu, etc. And we had that, but then I remember we had the we had some merch stuff. And what we did with Shopify at the time was quite unique. And I remember showing that to a lot of direct consumer brands with what you can do within Shopify that doesn't make it look too templatey, like the way it was designed. You were like one of yeah. our like our like sort of um, top like design type kind of examples. So that was in the deck for like, yeah, three years. So there you go, yeah. a bit of an interesting connection. 
yeah, it always had a kind of the real creative side to the business, which is what helped it flow and, you know, and doing things on a shoestring, you know, like the first restaurant, like we were like getting old scaff planks from builders to make the tables and the bar out of, you know, because nice. they had that beautiful weathered look and, um, you know, and like uh, box steel shelving and all of that very industrial stuff that's cheap as chips. And then obviously it became very popular and everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon. But the other thing I think it's interesting about Caravan, yeah, it's just that timing thing it was the right thing yep. for London at that time, yep. you know, well executed, which is sort of table stakes. It has to be, but it just, it kind of worked and it flew. And so the restaurant became like a bit of a juggernaut and the coffee was still in its infancy and it takes much longer to build the juggernaut, uh, to, to build the, um, to build the coffee. And so it really started to fly. Yeah. So you took a bit of a deviation, which I'm curious to understand. So you went from caravan to curves. Tell me your decision to go from like hospitality to healthcare. Yeah. So I, uh, I had to move back to New Zealand for a couple of years and sort of family issues and health issues. And it was a really messy sort of situation, unfortunately with the family. And, uh, so I got stuck out there, um, exited caravan actually went and did a took some time out like lived in bali and sort of learned to surf and nice. lived in france for a bit um and then went to london business school kind of did a, a master's degree there which was just a pure luxury sort of i don't know what i'm going to do so i'll spend some money on education and, um, <laughs> why not lsc yeah, yeah well exactly well, lbs yeah um well, brother. Yeah. yeah yeah and uh but you know great a pure luxury and I doubt, I guess, you know, thinking about healthcare, healthcare's messy and complicated, kind of broken. And if you think about, like Curve is just so we frame it, I guess, for the listeners, but it, it, it was like, it's a digital education product for cancer patients around self-help, kind of encouraging them to say, how do I help myself in this difficult situation? What can I do to kind of move the needle um, to, to do better, whatever those circumstances are. And, um, you know, it was driven by me dealing with my own health issues, not around cancer, fortunately, but in, in, in something else. And my father had cancer and, you know, cancer is just everywhere, particularly as you get older, it just yep. is, it's principally a disease of age. And it just seems so broken because with a chronic, when you're dealing with chronic diseases, they are, by definition, de diseases that health care or doctors or modern medicine haven't been able to cure, right? Like, it's chronic, goes on. It's like, it's not like a broken arm, you go and get it fixed. It's something that is much more complicated and difficult. And so that means the amount of knowledge around it is very limited. And, it, you know, that limitation varies tremendously. But if I would, you know, if I asked my oncologist, my main business partner and Curve, who was a, was a high end oncologist, like how much we know about the human body. You know, I used to say 20%, like before we kind of know everything there is to know and can pretty much cure all disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you think about it in that way, like the level of ignorance is massive. And he would say, yeah. we, he would say, we know 1%. Jesus. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Once you get down to the cellular level and you're looking at, say, complicated, uh, molecules made from proteins and others these things have like a molecule could have like 1500 constituent parts all shaped into a very advanced three-dimensional shape 
that sort of links with others. It's just, it's insanely complicated. Um, anyway, and bringing it back to sort of self-help is when you, when you don't have answers from the medical profession, everyone comes home and gets on the internet or their loved one gets yep. on the internet. And it's good and bad because we all have access to information now, but equally we're not great at processing information. I mean, yep. everyone became an expert around... Uh, epidemiology during okay. that, <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly everyone was an epidemiologist yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like i've done the research and it's like mm, yeah yeah i you know and so um we were trying to give them a guide to say you have to take control you're going to do probably going to do better everything has to be based probabilistically you're probably going to do better if you take responsibility here and understand that there are things that you can do outside what your doctors talk about that may help you. And we were looking at very basic stuff around diet, exercise, yep. mental health. Um, but if you go to get cancer care, pretty much anywhere in the world, they don't talk about those things at all. They sort of may talk about them as like, they will improve your quality of life, they like to say. But they'll say there's no evidence that these things can act against the disease. And when you start digging into the evidence, it's a bit murky and a bit unclear, but there's pretty good evidence that exercise will actually make you live a lot longer. Yep. There's some evidence around diet. It's not that strong. And it's sort of limited around, um, around mental health, but there is evidence that it upregulates and downregulates your immune system or your mental state. And your immune system has such an important part to play in cancer. So... You know, there's stuff there that if you're in a difficult position, it's worth looking at. And that's yeah. before you even get to like vitamin C injections or yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the crazy stuff that we wanted to. So we were trying to like steer them towards sensible stuff and away from the crazy stuff because there's a lot of crazy stuff out there as well. Yeah. And if you're in a de desperate position, it's, it's, you might as well try it. Totally. Um, yeah, so partnered with all these oncologists um top nutritionist like a really first class team built this sort of digital education product a series of videos essentially like a yep. video course um had a guy called craig ferguson who's a pretty well-known sort of comic and host of the late show and one of the late shows in the u.s used to be uh, he narrated it and, and top and tailed it with video and then covid came along and made it very difficult so um it just and it, covid went on for a long time and it was we needed help from the NHS, we needed help from charities, and they were all just reeling trying to deal with the pandemic. So it just became impossibly difficult. Um, so sadly shut it down. Um, that sucks, but I think it's super interesting in terms of like the direction of travel of, of curve. Um, and it's, it's not just it's not just cancer, it's every yeah, every I mean, it's information, issue. right? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Like, just like how do you find good sources of truth? In, in what is an infinite sea of information right like it's it's quite quite difficult um i think that's probably another podcast we could get into the you know the trials and tribulations of meta etc but um the i'm curious though with the current venture so rise and fall like you've got a, a rather interesting direct consumer business model which i'd love to get into and just like explain that mm, but like why mm. what what about the kind of like um the bedding and homewares industry, why did you want to disrupt that with, with Rise and Fall? And if you could just tell me a little bit more about it. Well, it's actually, um, it, Rise and Fall started with bedding and homewares sort of around the same time as 
Curve. When I came out of London Business School, sort of set up two businesses. I was working on Curve full time, and I and I recruited um, my business partner to, to run um, Rise and Fall. Um, and Rise and Fall essentially is iterated into what we call Rise and Fall 2.0. I mean, you can call it a pivot, but it, it we didn't need to pivot, but it was a much bigger and much more exciting opportunity. And just, I guess, explaining what it is, I mean, if you look at the website, you see a, a, a fairly, you know, looks like a, you know, a, a typical DTC experience, but there's quite a lot more going on there. And it came, it came about by thinking about this sort of excessive consumer consult culture. It's like, what if we could actually get away from that and be the antithesis of fast fashion? What if we could create something that designed and brought to market like life's essential items, but the best version that it possibly can be, whether it's a t-shirt or a shirt or the sheets you slept in last night that gave you a great night's sleep or the Mongolian cashmere jumper, that's literally the best example of that. And really focus on the quality of the product rather than being trend-driven, brand-driven. Brand's a whole other story. Brands are very important. And, you know, what if we could actually sell it for 50% less than what others are selling it for? Uh, and that goes to the business model. And it's sort of these pieces started falling into place. And it's really exciting because our model is different. We actually part with these manufacturers and they, yep. they, they help float stock for us. So we don't have the costs associated with a typical DTC. Yeah, that's so interesting. So like, because um, obviously drop shipping is like a big thing in the Shopify world, but I think that sort of lends itself more to that. Well, one, just like get rich quick schemes, right? There's shitloads of YouTubers trying to tell everyone, usually on the side of their Forex trading business, like <laughs> how to get rich quick with, with drop shipping. But the, the, the concept is kind of similar, right? So my understanding is you've got obviously high-end suppliers who are making products for various brands you guys have cut out that kind of middle part of the supply chain and you're the interface between them and the consumer, but you don't, you don't hold stock. So you're directing orders, et cetera, to them. Do they fulfill the orders or does that bit kind of come back to you guys? And like, what's that kind of experience like between, you know, I'm a consumer, I make the order and then like me getting the thing. Yeah. It's a, it gets a little complex, but it's a it's mixed we fulfill currently we fulfill most but some of the manufacturers fulfill also um the manufacturers are all over the world and so it gets difficult to um fulfill direct from manufacturer or direct from country of origin say there's a whole nother story about moving in that direction more in the future but again that's a whole nother podcast probably um but we take the stock and we, we, we house it in a, in a 3PL in the UK and then we ship it out. And then if you order an item that is drop shipped, it's sent separately and it just has to be very cl- clearly communicated. So we drop ships from some UK-based manufacturers. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, It's not trend-driven. Uh, the margins are lower because of the model, which gives us this huge price advantage. Yeah uh and it's it's very new we only launched it in november last year so it's um it's less than a year old so that's super interesting i'm I'm keen to just touch on that supply chain piece a bit more how do you find these kind of like suppliers did that was that a lot of the kind of initial work um trying to find like the right partners and you know how do you go about that how do you vet them how do you also kind of like 
uh, ensure quality control, especially if there's kind of sort of a drop shipping element to the kind of process? Yeah, so the manufacturing piece is super interesting. The reason, one of the reasons why the timing of this business is good, I mean, I guess we can talk about the macro environment later yep. in terms yep. of the consumer side, but from the manufacturer side, like they've been suffering the downturn of retail for probably 15 years, you know, slow decline leading to the failure of big chains, big department stores, the Debenhams, the yep. House of Fraser, Barney's in New York. I mean, all over the world, it's the same story. And so there's a sort of been death by a thousand cuts, I guess, over a decade, and then COVID accelerated that. So massive upheaval. And so they're all looking to sort of say, well, what does the future of retail look like? Like this old model of like buying a ton of stuff, like pumping it and then selling it, really trend driven, is that it? You know, it's, it's not from, it's not interesting to us. Um, and so I guess our timing was great in the sense that we were pushing an open door to some extent. It's still a hard sell because we are small. We, um, you know, our track record is limited. Our data on sell through is currently limited because we've been trading for 11 months or 10 months. And so um, it will get easier, but it does add a level of complication bringing these people in. We've got various ways of finding them. Some are crafty, some are just straight introductions. Yep. Um, and, you know, managing quality is hard. Like we're not, we thought when we started, we'd be doing a lot more private label stuff. So you just go into a room or a catalog and you pick some. There's some of that, but particularly for, Asian-based suppliers, that's not so good. Like you have to really specify the quality and make sure it's the best. So yeah, you interesting. know, we have a team that works on that. Yeah. So does, yeah, I'm I'm curious about that. But is that like a lot of body-on-body -body contact to make sure that that is there? Like, do you go out to the manufacturers? Is it is is it quite a um, not so much that it's handshake driven? There's obviously contracts involved, but do you know what I mean? Is it is it quite a relationship based to ensure that? I think it is. And that's why the kind of better ones we get are warm introductions by someone yep. who you sort of, you just get that nod that these guys are real. Yeah. Um, we've got great advisors behind us. You know, we've got VC money, which helps. It just gives them a bit of satisfaction. Yes, we, I mean, no, we didn't visit because of COVID, but yes, we're in the future a lot more. Um, you know, we've been to India, we've been to, to Israel, we've been to multiple places but we need to go to china um but yep. you can't get in i mean so it's it's um you know it's it's all done by zoom and and email maybe you'll take a playbook out or a leaf out of um apple's playbook and switch to india or at least five percent of the i saw that i said it was yeah. very interesting was, well i thought it was i was i thought it was interesting but i felt like the story was maybe blown up a little bit more like when i looked at the actual percentage that they're moving it's very very small and i couldn't tell if it was more a PR thing than it was, you know, actual sort of like operationally that different because they were still doing stuff in India already. It was, it was not a huge amount. I thought they meant they'd moved everything. Like that was the sort of general well, feel moved, I got from the article. It was like iPhone, was it 14 they're up to? Or, or? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 14, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I mean, they're probably diversifying their risk. I mean, we've seen what happens when Russia invades Ukraine, and then what's going to happen if China invades Taiwan? Taiwan, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and obviously they're testing India as well. But they must have been planning that for years. I mean, that's a, that's complicate, 
complicated stuff. Totally. Um, I know you're only 11 months in, but I'd, I'd love to get an understanding of like what your customer looks like. And so my initial observations were, I'm wondering, are they more of a con- conscious luxury consumer or is it more of a moderate conscious consumer that's looking for luxury because of the kind of price point? Like what does that kind of look like? It's a bit of both, but we see it again, it's so early in the data and the customer's changing, but we see it mainly as um, this person that is kind of reaching up that, because I guess what we're doing, if you think about disruption and this almost traditional clay Christensen sense where you take something that was very expensive previously and you make it affordable to a much bigger chunk of the population, you just grow the market, right? So we're taking a quality of product that was available to one or 2% of the population and making it available to 50 or 60% of the population. And so we, that's a kind of main target. I mean, that's very broad, obviously. But then there's also, I think, people that they just don't want a Gucci label on their T-shirt or they're kind of, I don't know, I feel like it's also an age thing. You get a bit older and you just realize that these brands kind of own your mental space too much and you just don't care. It's like... I want good stuff. I want a fair price. I'm happy to pay more for quality because quality inputs do cost a lot more than really cheap inputs. Um, And so there's that person as well that could buy much more, you know, expensive brand stuff, but they're kind of just a bit over it. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So what's been the kind of like, again, I know you're super new to it, but I'm very intrigued by that sort of stage that you're at. Like what's been the kind of, growth strategy have you been hard on acquisition Uh, i mean what have you been doing you know have you been taking the kind of classic ddc playbook you know and 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 running with that like how have you guys been have you been growing have you been getting customers yeah i mean we're fortunate that like there's a huge amount of work going into the brand like the brand is not right for us currently and you know i think we focused too much in the early days on performance and now we're sort of going back to that brand slide. So it's not a brand driven company and in flash, but it's the, you know, it is this like less but better kind of concept, this anti-fast fashion, this sort of yeah. integrity. And so we're going back to that and pushing into the heart and that's, that's brand, right? Um, so, you know, that's bedrock. We haven't been pushing them like the paid marketing massively. We, we do quite a lot and like Facebook, Instagram is a successful channel for us. Um, but you know, it's about getting the product right. It's about getting that brand right, and then scaling from there. Um, but look, we're still growing very fast. So um, you know, one of the biggest issues we've had is just keeping enough stuff in stock because it um, it sells fast. Yeah. Interesting. And and do you, does the the kind of business model lend itself to that concept, or is that are you finding more challenging? Let's assume that you just had one supplier. Would that be easier because you've got to have multiple and it's kind of a slightly different um, supply chain model? Yeah, there's lots of funky stuff going up on the um, on the uh, logistics. So it's about getting these, um, you know, the typical a typical order for for a, like a, a manufacturer is like once all your designs are finalised, it's it's good, it's three to four months of production. And then maybe a month of delivery or six weeks. So it's a huge process. We're moving to a model where, you know, like some of the factories we deal with, we're going to put orders in on a weekly basis and they'll be made every week for us. Uh, And then 
we can possibly ship it direct from the factory or from a local um, a local uh, 3PL and ship it direct to the end consumer so it doesn't come to a warehouse in the UK. And what that allows you to do is scale up the winners. Yeah, like interesting. Small stock, not invest a huge amount of stock, small numbers, but scale up the winners quickly. And it's kind of shades of, I mean, have you heard of Sheehan? Do you know who Sheehan are? Yeah, I've, I've heard of Sheehan. I've heard of Sheehan, definitely. I mean, fascinating business model. Like if you if you take away all the damage to the environment and I think the Instagram culture and that throwaway culture, that what you guys are trying to not do, but if you look at the business model, I think it, it is quite fascinating. I saw a really interesting thing that sort of charted the course of fast fashion back from Zara through to the Boohoo's and now, you know, to Shein and sort of looked at their kind of supply chain. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting where it's going. Yeah, it's exactly. It's taking the, the good parts. We are like the, the antithesis of fast fashion, as I keep saying, but it's it, what they do is very interesting and that they service the whole world from a central Asian hub is also pretty amazing because it allows you to grow like jurisdictionally very easy. Like if you hold all your stock in the UK and you want to start selling in the US, well, you better get a whole lot more stock in the US. Mm. That's a huge amount of working capital that's tied up. Yeah, interesting. If you can get the numbers right, if you can get the merchandising right, so you know what to make and when using, you know, using... They use a lot of trend forecasting, but getting the actual merchandising right and be very reactive, you know, it's just so much better. You sell the right things at the right time and um, you just reduce this dead stock. Um, yeah, so pretty impressive. And um, yeah, there's a lot going on behind the scenes so that we can uh, we can do we can do that. So we talked about it, uh, just touched on it briefly before. Um, and I suppose that was the the change in the world of the pandemic and, you know, unfortunately what happened with Curve. But I'm curious, like, what you guys are seeing because you're entering the market at a very interesting time. From a consumer behavior perspective, are you seeing anything interesting or that's surprising that's happening kind of right now? It's interesting. Like, the answer is we're not seeing a lot of surprise. Like, we're growing, you know, month over month pretty aggressively. And... Um, I think there's a lot of pain to cut, but people are still spending. Mm. I don't know. You go out, like if you're in a restaurant and yep. wherever you are, and it's, they're pretty busy. I mean, it's a busy time of year, like yep. traditionally, but it feels like the pain is coming, right? And it's a sort of, economists talk about confidence in the market, consumer confidence, business confidence. And there's a lot of fear around, obviously, there's Ukraine, there's the energy crisis, there's the threat of you know, nuclear wars being, uh, nuclear weapons being used for the first time. I mean, even just in a sort of small battlefield sense, but there's fear around China and Taiwan. It's just, there's a lot of fear. People got these mortgage rates as well, right? If you're a, a, a lot of people think that they're getting richer when their house is going up in value and that, you know, but unless you own multiple houses, everybody else, the other housing stock's going up by the same amount. So you're not really well off and you live in it if you've got multiple houses and you can sell them then you profit but people locked in these low rates these rates are coming to an end they're going to bounce out from two percent and be looking at six percent you know this is you know people are it's going to get i think it's going to get a lot worse yeah super interesting so and i guess what's good for us is um 
I mean, none of that stuff, you know, good for the world, but our, our offering is all about value. Like we try to provide yeah, the, yeah. the greatest value. It's like, and value is a combination of price and quality. Yep. is how we think about it. So we try to be the greatest value on the market. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, like the, yeah, <laughs> the, the anxiety around the world at the moment just seems, it feels like there's no like letting up, right? I saw that thing about like nuclear sort of wars now back on the table and I thought like, fuck, if we not had enough, like the whole <laughs> debacle of the mini budget felt like that was nuclear enough for everyone. Now we've got actual nuclear war back on the table. But uh, yeah, that's, that's super interesting about the your customer because I, I do feel that there's probably some interesting room to move there. And I think anyone that's in that kind of mid to luxury level is probably, you know, not that things are like recession proof, but I think value sort of luxury is a very interesting spot to be in when we're potentially entering into, I suppose volatile is not the right word, potentially down markets, right, you know, into next year. Yeah, like I think about it, like we're not Amazon, but like one of the best things Amazon's done in the last few years is introduce that Amazon's choice label, right? So if you're looking for like a super commodity product, and we're not a commodity, but we, you know, we fringe on it in some ways, it's just great. Like the, their algorithms are smart and they're like, this is the best item we think. And so you just like, it just takes away that hassle. So we're like providing all of these brilliant staples for your life, these essentials that sort of carry you through the day, morning to night, highest quality and we you've got to trust us and once you trust us you buy in multiple categories yep. and that's wonderful like we sell you bedding and then we start selling you clothing and then we can sell you some leather goods and it's fantastic yeah yeah it's a cool space to be in and it feels like the segue into those is so natural right it doesn't feel like you need to be uh, inauthentic when you're bringing out new products and new categories because it's a it's kind of like a natural progression well, we're not, you know, it's another reason why we're different from DTC is that we're in all these different categories from day one, which is, you know, it's just kind of punchy place to be. And we have to not lose, lose the quality and go too wide and too crazy. But equally, you know, we do sell a pretty wide range of stuff and, and there's more coming. So I want to switch gears slightly. Um, and I'm not sure if this is, if you were referring to Will when you talked about when you came out of, um, the, the master's program and you, you found a business partner for rise and fall but how do you assess co-founders you've done it a few times now and like what's it like working with will i will just caveat he might listen to this so just uh yeah we might <laughs> consider that there's no, there's no issue there will will is will is is absolutely first class and um very lucky to be partnering with him and i guess on that we're sort of foils for each other right like we fill in gaps where the others don't have it um, yeah, it's kind of like my third like actual startup that's being launched, and it, I guess it's, it's like a sort of Goldilocks story, right? Like Caravan, there were four of us, too many weird di weird dynamics. Two of them were a couple, just you know, not not good. Um, and then I sort of went hard the other way to curve, and I was essentially a solo founder. I had these oncologists, but you know, it was me and. Yep. Um, I don't think that's ideal. It works for some people, but it's kind of like investors don't like it. It's a single point of risk. Um, it's much harder. And so in terms of the ideal number, like the literature, the academic literature would say it's three, but I think that's too much, uh, too much dilution for, from the, th from the uh, founder's point of view. It might be the best from a kind of management, um, mm. management decision-making because you avoid deadlock, which you have with two. 
Yeah. But for me, two is the best, and that's that's where we're at with Will. You know, I think that the attributes you need between the two of you, like there's some things like you each person's got to have, and then I think there's some things that you can have between the two of you. Like the ones you can split, a vision, some kind of creative, ideally like sales, and ideally some sort of operational kind of nous, because particularly businesses like ours are quite complicated in terms yep. of the merchandising and back end. Yep. But then, you know, the you're, each team member's got to have the work ethic, you know, they've got yeah. to be able to put the hours in. There's, there's no way around that. And yep. then the, I, think the, I think the key is also having the right temperament, you know, like it's stressful. You don't want someone who comes into the office every day and is kind of stressy because particularly amongst the founders and you're trying to keep things calm and keep the, the team on track, mm. but you just need that kind of level-headedness and um, it's, you know, quite a lot of Kiwis, I think, have that. I'd like to say. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so interesting. I do believe that. I think there's, there's a cultural thing. I think Australian, I think Australian, Irish, Kiwis, Canadians, and English to some degree, I think. Uh, there, there is this kind of like slightly odd cultural connectiveness. And I think something around humor has a big part to play. Like I think we all get facetiousness, irony. I think that's probably where Americans are quite different. And sometimes that doesn't line up. And I think that there is, yeah, there's, there's definitely something in that. I, I definitely know whenever I meet anyone, well, Australia and New Zealand are kind of the same thing, right? It's like essentially the same thing. It's just, know big bit of water in between totally but i find i just immediately like click just there's this weird thing it just i can't and i kind of know that oh if i'm going to meet somebody who's museum like oh i'm just going to like i'll just get along with them it's just there's something in that so yeah but how do you how do you how do you kind of test for this sort of stuff did you test for it or did you you know how how did you kind of like so will's will's a decade younger than me right and he was my my wife or well, no, she married my partner but partner sounds weird um uh um well my well is very good friends with her younger brother and she's you know an incredible person he her brother's you know incredible person as well yep. and he recommended will when will came first to london and my uh, and maria my partner helped get him a job and so we had some exposure and we knew that he was that sort of solid kiwi type uh, and then we had various interactions, but we did jump into into bed, so to speak, quite quickly. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but look, we've never had an argument. We've never had a kind. Of, we have disagreements that we discuss, but we've never had issues. Um, we had to reshuffle some equity early on, and you know, it was just it's just like, well, what's fair? And we're both just reasonable and just get on and do it. So I've been very lucky. You know, the, the flip side is, you get it. You get it. And I know there's plenty of people have got one other partner and they just don't pull their weight or they're not. Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've so, not experienced that, but I was speaking to someone the other day who's in who's in, in a similar position and, and like just sounded terrible. It just like, I mean, it is a, it's an intense relationship like any other. I mean, it's so similar to a romantic relationship, right? Like the, the, the ups and the downs and the things that you share and the intimacy and like time spent. And I think if uh, you're in a toxic you know, <laughs> romantic relationship is the same as a professional one, right? You gotta, you gotta get out of it. You know, um, ideally, I think, I think it's really interesting your your like take and the way you you and Will Will are working. Like, it feels like you guys would be able to head off those potential, you know, like downfalls, right? Because if you've got that level headedness and the honesty, the integrity, the hard work, you know, you 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 
you'll get ahead of the issues before they become. And I think when people don't necessarily have those things, that's when things can start to fester and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. About it. you've got to have that open communication. If you're not happy, you've got to raise like small, you know, small-ish issues. Don't be petty, but don't let them become, don't hang on to them and let them become big issues that kind of explode later and, you know. But I think we're very fortunate in that because, you know, growing the business is, is hard and um, tough and managing staff. Mm. Like if you're fighting and fighting in the in the ownership, then... You know, I, I think you probably reduced your chances of success by thirty to fifty percent. You know, totally. like it's, it's it's dramatic. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I've got a couple of final questions. So the first one is, um, I don't know how this would work, but let's just assume, you know, humor me. Let's assume serial entrepreneur was not an option anymore. What would you do? Yeah, hard. I'd either just live a very simple life and kind of they carve surfboards or something even though I'm terrible with my hands but I think if I was going to work I'd probably be in education I think there's so much that's interesting there interesting. I think education's very broken I think people come out at sort of 21, 22 out of school and uni if you go that way and there's just so much they don't know about life about say mental health or mm. sexual mm. health or you know family um, trying to answer the big questions of life um and so they're unprepared and, you know, they've also been learning by rote mostly, which is not a good way to learn. So I think there's this huge potential in that space. Interesting. So final question, you've mentioned it a couple of times, so you're a surfer. So I've got the two-part question, um, favorite surf spot. And cause you're, you know, in or were in hospitality, I think you've got a pretty good um, palate, um, favorite restaurant, favorite surf, surf mm. spot, favorite restaurant. Yeah. Like, like, all surfers, I'm good at talking about surfing and pretty average at surfing. <laughs> so just just throw that out there. Um, favorite surf spot would kind of it's a region in New Zealand called Mahia, which is like kind of close to us where my mum lives, and uh, it's beautiful and there's lots of surf there. Nice. Restaurants, uh, that's hard to do one. I'll give you two. Um, yep. The River Cafe in London, because it's been yep. so seminal, at, like Jamie Oliver was discovered there, you know, the Morrow guys, the. Um, Trulo people, the River Cafe, uh, River Cafe, like they all came out of there. And then there's a restaurant uh, on the backside of the market in Jerusalem called Magna Yuda, which is um, a really cool place. Yeah, the guys, some of the people, I don't know if they own, but they're Palomar in London and Barbary, kind of uh, of that stable. But it's um, super great place. Oh, like two excellent choices, Jed. I think that's a good way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much, Tim. Good, good to chat. There you go, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Clevio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. You know what they say about